Hey, I'm Chris Martin, and you're listening to episode one of the Social Cues podcast. So like I said a minute ago, my name's Chris Martin. I work in a number of roles at Lifeway. I manage content strategy. I'm the managing editor of Lifeway Voices, and I run the corporate social media accounts for Lifeway on Twitter and Facebook. I have a lot of experience working in social media and blogging and things of that nature. I love studying social media and everything that goes along with it, like social media culture or strategy. And I have a couple of friends who had talked about starting a podcast at some point about social media, specifically from a Christian perspective. And they're joining me here for the first episode of the Social Cues podcast. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Elizabeth, you called us friends. I know. So We're so special. Right. If, unless it's like Facebook friends and then oh, that, that's meaningless. Mean anything. Yeah. Yes. I'm Elizabeth Heinemann and I also work at Lifeway as an editor for Bible studies and for Bibles. And I used to run the social media accounts for Lifeway Women, but I have passed on that baton. But I just still love social media, love the connections that can be made there, and am still interested in learning a lot about it. And I'm Jonathan Howe. I'm the Director of Strategic Initiatives at Lifeway Christian Resources. And in that role, I, I do a lot of different things and handle social media for the president's office and a couple other things, as well as some SBC relations and things. So I also host a few podcasts, SBC This Week, Rainer on Leadership, and Revitalize and Replant. So this is a podcast number four for me, Chris. <laughs> well, I, that's that's all right. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not giving you host responsibilities. And in fact, I'm going to be editing this podcast, which is kind of scary for me and probably the biggest obstacle obstacle to us even starting doing this in the first place. So you can just consider yourself a, a regular guest on this one, how as opposed to the person running the show as you're maybe Fantastic. more accustomed to. So to, I should be clear, even though all three of us work at Lifeway Christian Resources, uh, we should say on the front end and probably with some regularity that this is not a Lifeway podcast. <laughs> uh, the things we say on this podcast are not endorsed by Lifeway or reflective of Lifeway Christian Resources as a whole. I feel like we need to put that disclaimer out there. Not that we plan to be particularly problematic or controversial or anything like that, but uh, this is just a fun podcast between a few friends who happen to work at Lifeway, not an official Lifeway podcast. Disclaimer over. The first thing that I think we should talk about uh, I, I kind of want to start every podcast with the same thing and end it with the same thing. We'll get to the end later, obviously. But the, the question that I always want to start with, uh, we'll call is what's on your mind. And if you've ever been on Facebook, which if you haven't been and you're listening to a social media podcast, I'm really confused about you. But if you've ever been on Facebook and maybe paid attention to the the sort of grayed out text that's on your Facebook status, it'll say what's on your mind, as if you're just always supposed to tell Facebook what's on your mind. And so we thought that might be an appropriate question to start every podcast with. What's on maybe, your mind? Chris, maybe that's the problem with Facebook. Is it? I was going to say, that's why I'm not on Facebook very much anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. Twitter always asks what's happening, which is a different question in and of itself. I think more people are telling yeah. Twitter what's on their minds than what's happening, but that's a different discussion. So anyway, the what's on your mind portion of our program will start off every episode with, at least for the time being, until we decide we don't like it anymore or something like that. Every time the question will be what's on your mind and it'll have to do something with a a social media problem, a social media strategy, something going on in social media culture that we just kind of want to throw out in the middle of the table and let us all pounce on and talk about our opinions, maybe disagree and banter a bit. So first question, 
I came up with this week, what's on your mind? The question I have that I want to throw out into the middle for us to discuss for the first few minutes is this. Which major social media platform do you think is most prone to shutting down first and why? So let's say most social, the, the major social media platforms would be Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, YouTube. Maybe we'll, we'll limit it to those. There are others obviously that exist, but which of, LinkedIn, sorry. <laughs> yeah. What is that? What is the fact well, that I, I forgot LinkedIn say about LinkedIn? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. So those are the major social media platforms. Which ones do you guys think? Which one would you say? I think that one's most prone to shutting down first and here's why. Well, I'll jump in first because I have the here's why part on mine. Uh, I have actual data. I vote for either Pinterest or Snapchat mainly because you've got to have marketing money. You've got to have cash coming into the corporation to stay afloat. I mean, it, it may get sold or something at some point, as we've seen a lot of other social media platforms and even you know, just kind of uh, offshoots and, and startup social media things that have been enveloped. You know, Facebook, for instance, has bought a bunch of social media platforms, including Instagram. You know, they're, they bought that. So uh, it didn't shut down. It just kept going. So my answer is either going to be Snapchat or Pinterest, mainly because Snapchat is not as used for marketing purposes, and it really hasn't become much of a differentiator between what Instagram has become. So there, there's too much similarity there, not enough differentiating, and the marketing data just doesn't lend itself. So I've got a link we'll put in the show notes. How many marketers are using Instagram? 2018, 69% of marketers were using Instagram. Only 28% were using Snapchat. So that right there says, hey, look, they're going for people that are on Instagram. A lot of people, there are very few people who are, are on one and not the other. So I, I think at the end of the day, the business money goes toward Instagram. And with all the Snapchat redesign and user experience issues they've had and some of the celebs coming out saying that they were bailing on them, those kind of things. That's why I say Snapchat. And also Pinterest is the other one that I said, and you know, your coin flip on for me for that. Because Pinterest, I think it's it's kind of lost its moment and it hasn't added anything new or different things like that. So it, it's just kind of the same as it was whenever it started. You know, the audience is still kind of there, but at the same time, I think it's probably the one that's most in peril because it just doesn't offer the, the community a lot like the other ones do. I think that Pinterest may be just evolving in the way that we use it. And that's from what I've heard from other people. We don't use it as much as like a social media platform anymore. It's more of a research, like a separate Google, but for specific things. So like if I'm planning a trip or need a recipe, I go to Pinterest and search there. I don't just sit for hours and scroll through it like I used to. Not for hours, but I used to scroll through it like I would Instagram or something like that. But I don't do that anymore. And from what I've heard from other people, they're using it the same way. They go and it's like a separate search engine that's more specific to maybe blogs. And I even heard that marketing is they're starting to look at how they can use Pinterest more in the especially like in book marketing and things like that. So I don't know. That was just like word on the street. I don't have stats. <laughs> I think Pinterest is definitely starting to be seen more as like a reference tool and almost like a bookmarking a bookmarking platform and like a comeback here. I mean, I don't think my wife regularly uses Pinterest anymore like she did more in, in college when it was first kind of bursting onto the scene. But I know that like when we're cooking, or like when we're making dinner, 
one of the most common places she still references for recipes that we've just never written down on a card right. or something like physical. She still goes to boards that she started like five and six years ago, even though she's not scrolling regularly. We still mm-hmm. like keep some like key recipes or, or things like that, like home, like interior design stuff. She still references there pretty regularly, even if she's not actively pinning. So yeah, I think Elizabeth, yeah. your point about Pinterest maybe evolving. I think how, I think to your point, I think it's, super likely that it could get bought by someone maybe not shut down but bought and kind of mm-hmm. losing its independence but uh, but i do s- still hear it maybe being used just not how it was before elizabeth which one do you think is most prone to shutting down i probably agree with the snapchat i don't know of anyone that uses snapchat except i know well i won't say i won't know of anyone but i know of like five people and they're not necessarily in the demographic that you would think snapchat it's like moms of little kids who use the filters for fun and then like some people that use it amongst their family, like as a kind of like a group text, but they use it, they use Snapchat instead. And so I think it's almost like a Voxer maybe is the way that they're using it instead of a social media. So I would say it's probably. Everything you just described you can do in Instagram. Right. Or Facebook exactly. or any other thing. So again, the differentiating factors not Or even just in text there. messages. Yeah, that you know? too. Yeah. yeah. The emojis. Mm-hmm. I uh, my vote would be Snapchat, and it's not even close. Yeah, I think when Instagram introduced Stories, I was like, ah, there's no way Instagram Stories will overtake Snapchat. Snapchat had that first; <laughs> they have the attention first, and I like couldn't be more wrong about anything. I think yeah. Facebook via Instagram has taken everything that made Snapchat unique and has made it better and integrated it into a platform that people already liked using. I think I think it was, uh, gosh, it may have been five years ago now, four years ago now that Facebook offered to buy Snapchat for like $2 billion and they turned them down. And I think I've said for a while, it hasn't happened yet, but I've said for a while that I think eventually Snapchat will wish it would have taken the $2 billion buyout uh, because I don't think it's going to, I don't think its value is going to go up a whole lot. Like I think... I think the filters, like it has more unique filters and it, it's kind of been on the, the cutting edge of filters more than other platforms have, even Instagram and stuff. But, and, and like I work in student ministry, I lead the student ministry at our church. Young people are still using Snapchat a lot in addition to Instagram or whatever. Like it's still, it's still being used by young people and young people often drive social media culture and stuff like that. But when it just comes to monetization and like scale and growing, Snapchat just, it's it was given a pretty solid ceiling when Instagram really started to barge into its territory on what makes it unique. So I would I it sounds like all of us are in agreement that Snapchat's probably the the most likely with how giving a bit of a caveat on on Pinterest maybe being acquired or not being used like it was before. Um mm-hmm. so yeah, I think we can all declare Snapchat's going to die soon because we know exactly how that first. stuff works. Yeah. Right, exactly. We went on a limb here on the first episode. Right, right, right. All right, so first first article we want to talk about how it's going to take the lead on. How What are you bringing to us this week? There's an article at The Verge called The Mormon Church Versus the Internet. It dropped on July 1st, and I saw it, and it just had some fascinating takeaways, and I'm just going to read a few quotes here from, but it's talking about how people have used the Internet and how the LDS Church is really struggling with keeping people in the church, younger people, because of the internet and and how the internet has allowed them to 
find out more information, research things on their own. So just a couple of chunks of text here. In recent years, the church has been embattled by the efficiency of the internet. It's never been easier to stumble across information that contradicts the pillars of the faith. That's true for many religions, but especially Mormonism, which has a very recent history. Where the unsavory specifics of an older faith's origins may have been eroded by time, reduced to a handful of too-old-to-question texts and some shriveled relics. The early years of Mormonism are well-documented and easily examined online. The Internet has also given Mormons new platforms from forums to podcasts where they can share their findings. The result has been a mass indoctrination. It chronicles a lot of what's going on in the LDS Church. Now, this is not really... I think uncommon to what we see in Christian faith as well. As, as evangelicals, we we see the internet, and, and you even have the term exvangelical uh, that we we've seen pop up over the past few years. But the Mormon Church is really seems to be combating this. And one of the weird things is they talk about their SEO strategy. So that like they hired somebody, the LDS Church hired somebody to be in charge of the SEO strategy, trying to keep people from finding other different sites, the ex-Mormon type sites and, and things like that. And so it talks a little bit about how they've done that. It, it gives some personal examples and just some fascinating insight into some of the struggles that's going on in the LDS church. And I, I think we also, like I said, we see this in evangelicalism and even in our own denomination, all three of us are Southern Baptists. And a conversation I have with a friend a lot of times is what would have happened, you know, the, the big thing in the Southern Baptist Church, the conservative resurgence, 1979, kind of moving it back toward conservatism from a liberalism uh, viewpoint, especially from the national side of uh, the SBC, some of the entities and stuff. And we have the argument of what would have happened if the conservative resurgence tried to take place in an Internet age with social media, would it have gotten to that point? Would it have never happened? Would it have been combated through the internet? And we don't know the answer to that. You can't go back in armchair history. But I did find there was a quote in here that it's talking about somebody from Reddit on a subreddit for the ex-Mormons said the the code name is VH65. And that's the person's username that didn't identify her in the article says that the internet's real impact on her faith was not allowing her to stumble across information that disturbed her but in the way that she was able to deeply research that information and verify its accuracy, and I would say add inaccuracy as well, using sources she trusted. So the Internet and social media in general, I think that's something that we've we found and that we could probably attest to in not just in faith but in different ways. Uh, from uh, Elizabeth, we were having a conversation last night about uh, on, on text about things that we learned growing up in schools in different parts of the country and, and you were homeschool. I was public school in the South. Chris was public school. I, I'm going to call it in the North, North Midwest. I don't know what you want to call Fort Wayne, Indiana, Chris. But the things that we learned, I wouldn't say indoctrinated in schools, but some people would even say that. Things that I've had to go and kind of relearn later in life because of what textbooks, what perspectives, things that taught me. Um, and, and the big issue we talked about, you know, Elizabeth and I growing up in the South is, the Civil War being for states' rights or other things than slavery, not just about slavery. Oh, that was something that I was taught and that I learned. And then now looking back on it, it's like, I, it was states' rights and stuff about slavery. Yeah. So <laughs> that was kind of the root of it. You know, the more you right. read, you know, read the Grant bio. Chris, you and I read that and we loved that book. But yeah, uh, that that's something that, that it, it's an example of this. And that's not a religious example, but it is an example of the internet being able to, to kind of flatten the intellectual playing field, so to speak. And um, it just some, some fascinating things in here. And But there was this one part about social media 
at the end of the article that I did want to mention because I think it gives a good snapshot for what social media and, and how the internet has changed things. Uh, it says, but if the internet is inherently threatening to the church or any faith, it's perhaps not because of the way it affirms doubts. Going back to the research part from earlier. Rather, it's in the community it opens up, a community that can be just as close-knit and supportive as a ward. And it's the, uh, the church in the LDS church. Where the churchofjesuschrist.org offers scripture, the internet beyond the church's domain shines light into what has historically been a black box, the lives of the people who have left. So that community that social media and the internet offer a lot of times maybe more damaging to the church and and our church cultures as well than actual like information online. So that that's what jumped out to me in this article is is the place that social media has within the church not just for people who are struggling and maybe questioning their faith and, and not just the LDS church but in our evangelical churches as well but the community that it offers for them and for those who stay. Mm-hmm. We we talk a lot about a, a Christian subculture in you know, in our faith and just the people and the things and, and some of the, the people who have are Christian famous, so to speak, uh, versus, you know, real famous, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's the right. the term there. But but it, it's it's not just evangelicals. It's the Mormon church. I'm guessing there you could probably write the same article about the Catholic church or, or even, you know, a host of other religions. But it just was something that jumped out to me this week. This is going to sound like a plug, but I promise I'm not trying to plug myself. It's just you, this conversation, this whole conversation has reminded me of like, of an entire chapter I wrote in my book on millennials, which is about how the internet is the lowest common denominator that's affected the millennial generation. Like if you had to, that was a product plug, by the way, Chris, if you, yeah, I didn't tell anyone where they can find it. Uh, I don't even, maybe it's out of print. I don't know how that works, but the, um, the, the internet is the lowest common denominator about what makes the millennial generation so unique. And I think it, it's going to hold true for iGen as well. Just for millennials, those born roughly between 1980 and the middle of 1990s or so, they they were affected by the internet because it was provided to them in their homes, in their living rooms for the first time. iGen, younger people, are being affected by the internet because it's been in their pockets when they were adolescents, uh, which wasn't even true for most millennials. And so I think how the internet affects us just culturally, sociologically, but then also in terms of our faith. Um, you know, my, my beliefs were challenged. My beliefs about life, my beliefs about God and, and philosophy or just like what's beyond were in general, uh, challenged at a much younger age because I was logging onto the internet at age seven than my parents or certainly their parents ever were growing up and largely interacting with people who, who lived like them, thought like them in their hometowns. So yeah, I think it's it's fascinating to see the Mormon church grapple with this and the evangelical church is certainly grappling with this as well and how YouTube videos, especially thinking young people, how YouTube videos or social media personalities in general affect the views of the, the sort of radicalization of young people via YouTube. There was a article about that in the New York Times recently. Uh, it's really interesting to see how the internet is connecting us in so many ways, which is very positive for, for a lot of reasons, but then also, uh, organizations like the Mormon church or, or, uh, evangelicalism as a whole are being, are seeing their systems of beliefs challenged, uh, by, by what people can access on the internet, uh, whether or not it actually refutes it isn't the point. The fact is that it's being challenged. Yes. Yes. And, and I do want to just point out this article does have some language in it, uh, but it also has maybe one of the funniest terms that I've heard in quite a while. 
uh, where it talks about, uh, this is a quote, Jamie had noticed that the man's wife was wearing tank tops and showing, quote, porn shoulders on Facebook. So I, I thought that was a term that I had never heard before, but apparently is a thing in the LDS church. So no tank tops, Elizabeth. All right. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. Except, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no tank tops allowed. Let's move on to the second one. Second thing we want to talk about this week, I'm taking the lead on, and then Elizabeth has something incredibly fascinating at the end, which we were all kind of making jokes about in our group text last night, but it is actually really fascinating. So we'll get to hers in a second. Thing I wanted to talk about real quick is uh, an article that I found on Medium called On Etica and Authenticity. Now, I have to do a little bit of context and background here before any of this is going to make any sense. So uh, I'm going to read the beginning of this article, which will provide some context. Then I'll talk about the important issue that I think it brings up. So this article uh, begins like this. When 29-year-old Ghanaian-American YouTuber Desmond Amofa, known to his hundreds of thousands of fans as Etika, went missing from his Brooklyn apartment last Wednesday, some people questioned whether to raise the alarm with the authorities. Amofa had gained a reputation among some of his peers for what they viewed as attention-seeking, twin episodes in October 2018 and April 2019 that had seen Amofa in the throes of a mental breakdown were cast by some as attempting to contract, to, sorry, to attract controversy to his YouTube channel, bringing him money, fame, and power. Certainly some of Amofa's behaviors encouraged that viewpoint. He began one interview with Daniel Keemstar Keem, a YouTuber who hosts Drama Alert, which is a TMZ-like series covering the controversies of the world of online video by comparing, by comparing himself to the Antichrist. This is Etika comparing himself to the Antichrist, saying, I've come to purge the planet of all human life. What could have been considered by cynics as a flagrant attempt to court controversy has been shattered with the benefit of hindsight. A body was fished out of the East River over the weekend, this is now two weekends ago, after a handheld game console, wallet, and driving, driving license belonging to a MOFA were found on the Manhattan Bridge. Just before 1 p.m. Tuesday, this is again two Tuesdays ago now, uh, New York Police Department confirmed that the body was that of a MOFA. Desmond MOFA a.k.a. Etika, had committed suicide by jumping off the Manhattan Bridge. Now, this is a really hard topic to talk about. Obviously, suicide and mental illness is not easy to talk about. But seeing this, I, I'm not one who followed Etika closely. He's a really popular YouTuber in general, primarily known for his sort of hyperbolic and outlandish reactions to video game news. So, for instance, a couple of months, or gosh, probably nine months ago now, when Nintendo announced their new Super Smash Brothers game for the Nintendo Switch, which is one of the most popular games on what has become one of the most popular video game consoles in recent memory uh when they when they released their sort of trailer for that and announced that that game was coming uh etika had one of the most famous reaction videos to that trailer where it shows him kind of a face cam on him watching the video and you can find it on youtube even still today a lot of people have sort of memed it by replacing the trailer of super smash super smash brothers the video game with some other sort of crazy video and then having etika's reaction it just became a very uh, sort of magnetic funny 
um, uh, hyperbolic reaction video. And he was known for doing those for all kinds of things. But then, I actually remembered this. I, I feel, yeah, I feel young. I, I did not follow, I did not, I'm not subscribed to him on YouTube or anything like that, but I, I was aware of him and his kind of place in YouTube culture, the kind of the outlandish, crazy guy reacting to video game announcements. And so, um, and he really, he became known and kind of beloved for that because he was, he had a really rabid fan base and, and things like that. But I didn't pay super close attention to him until this sad stuff started happening since about October when he was clearly struggling with some mental illness. And there, he live streamed New York police knocking down the, the door to his Brooklyn apartment, uh, to, because there was a, a wellness call called in on him and he was taken to a mental, mental institution and released after a single day, uh, because he showed that he was fine or, or, or whatever the process was that was done for that. And so then unfortunately, uh, he, he committed suicide this, this past, a uh, couple weeks ago, I think, end of June. Um, and it calls the, to the fore a serious issue with mental health and social media. Uh, one of the important quotes that I found from it, I'm going to read this quote. This is further down in the article. Um, the author is talking about what a social media influencer has to deal with in in building a following and maintaining it for their livelihood. He says, there's also the odd duality of a life lived online and the attempt to preserve some element of privacy while competing for the eyeballs of highly fickle viewers. On one hand, YouTubers are encouraged to tamp down any bad feelings they may have. They're asked to dial down their moroseness for fear of alienating an audience that doesn't have the same luxury as they do in life. A lot of times, this is me talking now, a lot of times I've seen YouTubers talk about how hard their life is and then their their fans, quote unquote, their fans come back and say, are you kidding me? You do YouTube for a living. Stop complaining. So a lot of times I know YouTubers don't feel like they have the freedom to talk about how they're struggling. Okay, back to the quote from the article. But on the other, YouTubers often feel the need to ramp up their emotions, to generate drama, confected conflicts with other creators, and draw attention to themselves. It's the reason why a 22-year-old high school dropout from Ohio, Jake Paul, will occasionally set fire to furniture in the empty pool of his Californian home. So when someone bears their soul to express the concern about their mental health, that cry for help can often be seen as something designed to attract more views. It's an unwelcome footnote to the untimely death of Etika at the age of just 29 that his final video, uploaded automatically a few hours after he disappeared, boosted the average number of his daily views received by 500%. The video was removed by YouTube after it became clear that the young man was missing and long before his death was confirmed. The third-party uploads of the video will continue to be posted. YouTube keeps taking them down. Um, YouTubers and social media influencers in general, there's a serious mental health crisis. I mean, there's a mental health crisis among young people in general right now. Even the 16-year-old who keeps uploading selfie after selfie and deleting them after they've not gotten enough likes in the first five minutes. Um, social media and mental health is something I'm continually interested in. And even though I'm not a psychologist or, or anything like that, um, it's clear from this example, which is a bit of an extreme one, that that social media is having a dramatically a dramatic negative effect on mental health. Uh, and it's something that's concerning to me, and I want to hear what you guys think about it. Yeah, I think that the line that you quoted, there's an odd, there's also the odd duality of a life lived online. I think there's the duality of it, but then there's also the merging of it, especially in the younger generations where they don't, 
necessarily they can't distinguish in their brains between online life and real real life. And I think we see that comparison come out a lot, even on Instagram. So I don't follow a lot of the YouTube um, news or any of that, that, but I see a lot on Instagram with like the influencers that are supposed to be selling me stuff all the time. And they just have to constantly do that in order to make a living while who knows what may be happening in their actual personal lives. And then with the younger generations, we're not seeing like the separation of identity outside of their like online life. So if they are not getting likes or views or whatever it is that they're trying to get, then that has an effect on how they think of themselves. It's like an identity crisis between the two. So I, I think this is an important thing to look into and something that I'm not really sure what we do as viewers, like how we could help that issue, but it's something that I definitely have thought about before. Like, what is there anything that we can do as the people that are liking and viewing and all of that kind of stuff? Is there anything that we can do to kind of help with this duality and merging at the same time? And I'm not sure the answer to that question. Yeah, and it it seems like a, an extension in in part to just reality television culture. Yeah. Uh, yep. Because the the YouTube, you know, the YouTubers and the Instagram influencers and all that stuff, it it really seems like a an extension to what we've seen in the rise of of reality TV. Going back to like the first real world and road mm-hmm. rules and all those things back when we were young and our parents wouldn't let us watch those things probably. That in itself it's just this, this desire to be famous versus this desire to live a life and and, and how people gauge success. And I, I think that that the how you gauge success, how you gave how you gauge relevance in your life, that's that's kind of at the root, it seems, of, of a lot of the yeah. mental health issues. It just plays yep. out in different ways. Right. And, and people, you know, the access to having a YouTube show or having an Instagram influencer account, those kind of things, that access, the ease of access has it kind of accelerated that in those in, in those um, silos or whatever you want to call them. Uh, it, it's the same problem, just being seen in different ways, and, and yeah, it is an issue, and, and it it is. I, I think I'm getting way too deep into this. Maybe it has, I think, a little bit to do with parenting as well. As a parent, I've got four kids, and I know neither of you have have children yet, but like that's something that you kind of have to look at, and you see this, and go, all right, now how? What am I doing in my parenting, and to keep not keep my kids from doing this, but at the same time, like. So that my kids understand that this is this is not a healthy mental right. space, right? Uh, and and that's that's a that's a tough question to answer as a parent, and, and you you do wonder like the, the the folks like this that you're talking about, Chris, like what what were the, where are the parents? What's the parent relationship dynamic like there? Uh, I'm not saying that it's all on the parents, and it's not the parents' fault. I'm just right. saying that I, there's a bigger picture. There's so many different angles to this, and so many different influences and and, and different um, parts to it that. It's hard to narrow it down and say, all right, it's just this one thing. It's this convergence of all these other issues. Well, and like we were talking about with the first article, like the the community online almost being a replacement for the community in real life. And I think that that's what's happening here is there's not necessarily and I don't know about this specific case, but a lot of the Instagram influencers or the YouTube artists, there may not be like the real life community and right. that's so important and that's why we can't neglect it yeah. in our churches. Yeah. Yeah, I think it I think it just goes back to like the root cause, the root issue of us finding our identity and our worth 
not in Christ. Like mm-hmm. the, the, and, and, but with social media influencers, it's just so much more public and broadcasted, right? Like some people, um, unfortunately, um, commit suicide because they were trying to find their worth in their work and it didn't pan out or their worth in their relationships and it didn't pan out or, but those are more private. Those are more private. And with, with social media and mental health, when you find your worth in your followers or how your followers respond to your content and you don't feel whether, whether or not your followers are saying this, you feel as though, um, your worth to your followers is whatever you produce for them, not who you actually are. When right. that becomes the case and you get some poor response or you don't, or your, your influence starts to fade, then your worth just inherently starts to fade. And so I think it's going to be, this is, this is only an emer, because, you know, Etika, this, this YouTuber who had millions of subscribers on YouTube and, and hundreds of thousands of followers on social media platforms, we know about him just because he was famous. And I mean, even you guys didn't really know about him. I had to introduce you to him, but like his was seen on a, on a very large scale because he's so well known. But I, my fear is that this is happening in, in, in high school hallways and teenagers' bedrooms and kitchen tables, uh, every single day and week. And yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. There are so many kinds and we're not, we're not citing any mental health statistics right now, but just in my research as a leader of student ministry who cares about his students and books I've read or articles I've read, mental health, uh, and, and anxiety is a bigger problem than it seems to have ever been in recent history. And I think social media and the constant need to perform, um, is, is the root cause of that. Um, and I don't, you don't blame the platforms themselves. I, I don't think Instagram is what's causing mental illness to, uh, skyrocket and anxiety is sky- I don't no I think it's just human nature that's being amplified through these tools and um and I don't think we just like lay all the blame because then people will just be trying to find it in different ways uh but anyway so I think I think we maybe talked enough about that I want to make sure we leave plenty of time for Elizabeth's article which is a bit more lighthearted and fun so I think it'd be good for us to end on this Elizabeth what'd you bring this week <laughs> oh she I think she took offense to that that what this is lighthearted well She's I mean maybe it's cutthroat but it's very fun <laughs> well, so I f- I follow the royal family, and when okay, Meghan Markle, hold on, hold uh-huh. on, you, follow. You, you, <laughs> you're very you're more interested in the royal family than the average American. That's probably true. That's probably true. Okay. I have had somebody tell me that I was if they if we believed in past lives, I was definitely British in a past life, and I agree, <laughs> I probably was. Um, but. So Mer- Meghan Markle, as you may or may not know, is an American actress who married Prince Harry, um, who is, I mean, he's been knocked down, but he was, uh, he was fourth in line to the throne. Now he's probably sixth, seventh in line. How does that happen? Because every time, so he's the, the younger brother. The first son brother, has kids. So the first son, every time William and Kate have another kid, Harry gets knocked down again in su- succession. Wow. Yeah. So I think he's like seventh or eighth at this point in line. This is what causes people to like revolt on their their nieces and nephews. Yeah, exactly. This is this is what happened like in the 1600s. I think that's why they kind of took away most of their power. So it doesn't matter, you know. Um, So they got married, and shortly thereafter, well, it was almost a year after the houses split. So Meghan and Harry were under the Kensington Palace house. Jonathan's laughing at me right now. I'm trying to explain this as quickly as possible. But the houses split. And so the in that, also, Meghan and Harry got their own Instagram account, which is at Sussex Royal on Instagram. And they 
I'll just read from this article that I found um, on cheatsheet.com. But it said, with just a single gallery post, the account was attracting followers by the thousands. It became so popular so quickly that it even broke a Guinness World Record in under six hours. So they got one million followers in five hours and 45 minutes. Same. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Basically when I post something. Um, So right as of this moment that we're recording, they have 8.8 million followers. And so this was a huge deal, first of all, that they even got an Instagram account. Second of all, there's a lot of rumors that... Megan herself is running the Instagram account, um, which is also rare because generally the royal family has people that run their social media for them. Um, so, but Megan, before she became princess or duchess, sorry, she's not a princess, she's a duchess. <laughs> before she became a duchess, hey, don't mess that up. She, uh, she had her own social, like lifestyle blog, sort of like the goop called the Tig. And so she was already an Instagram influencer, so she's very well-versed in Instagram. And so people think that she is actually running the account herself and, like, writing captions and all that. Is that, like, a faux pas? It's just a big deal because it's not been done before. Guess what? They're not going to tell her no. Like, Princess Di and Charles, they didn't have Instagram. Right. But they did tell her to shut down the TIG and her own Instagram account. So, like, that was a a thing. Mm Mm-hmm. So, like, like, I just need, did, did the queen herself tell her this or like, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure how how that's gone down. It's very I don't want to be the person who had to tell her that. Let me just put it that way. Yeah, I think in the Lifetime movie, which I have not watched, but I've <laughs> heard several podcasts about it um, in the Lifetime movie about their relationship up leading up to the wedding. Prince Charles is the one that told her that she had to shut it down. Um but I don't, they just I don't, make him look like the bad guy and everything, yeah, I think. Yeah. So they just made up stuff for that Lifetime movie. So who knows? Um, okay. So one of the things, though, that is the reason why this is interesting to all of us, I feel like, is not only the Guinness World Record, because that's a major thing, um, but also because shortly after, so like a month into their Instagram account, people noticed that they had unfollowed all the other royal families. They had unfollowed everybody. And... There was like a whole controversy about whether they were fighting with uh, William and Kate. But then they posted on April 30th, they posted about May being Mental Health Awareness Month. And so what they are going to do each month is they choose a different theme and then they follow charities that are working towards that theme. So for May from Mental health awareness they follow these charities that are working towards mental health and that's like a big cause for them um and has been for a while with harry and william and kate this whole episode just tying together so perfect yeah and so each month they choose a different theme and they highlight those charities and i couldn't find um there hasn't been a lot of studies done yet to see how their impact actually is happening um a couple there's an article that was written seven days into this and so they said so it's not really a comprehensive but they said one of the campaigns that they highlighted the first month is kind campaign which is uh, an organization devoted to fighting girl-on-girl bullying and that instagram account saw a three percent increase in followers after the sussex royal instagram posts with one percent of those followers traced to london specifically so it is having an impact on these whatever they choose. And I just haven't ever seen that before where the Royals are impacting by who they follow rather than like what they post 
necessarily. And I think that's for them because they can't accept money. They're not going to be like Megan's not going to be doing weight loss teas, you know, on the Instagram. That's a thing that influencers do. <laughs> okay. John right. looks funny. Yeah. So the, the number of yeah, weight loss teas that, big, that she big, has gotten big from controversy me in this. about weight loss teas on Instagram. And by tea, yeah. we mean like drinking tea, not like t-shirts. Oh, oh, right, oh. Right. I was like, yeah, okay. sorry. Weight loss, drinking teas. All right. <laughs> That's a big influencer. I was, I was thinking weight loss teas don't care basically like just that. like make you get sick so you lose weight. That's what the controversy is. Exactly. <laughs> so um, Megan's not going to be selling that. She's not going to be selling Warby Parkers on the Instagram or anything like that. They can't make money from their social media. But this is a way to use their influence for good and to make money for these other charities. So um, I just thought that was fascinating, like in an interesting way to kind of get around a way to influence via social media that I had never thought of before. Leave it to the American to lead the revolution. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Of from course. the inside. See what I did there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um. Cool. Well, that's like that's a good. I, I don't. I don't think I have much to say on that. That's just really cool. I like the. Uh, I like we have a feel good story of the week there with. Uh, there you go. That's that's really cool. I mean, I, I kind of, I poke fun at people who care a lot about the about the Royals or whatever. No offense to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I do have one question. Mm-hmm. Um, who's your, who's your favorite Royal? Oh gosh, probably Kate Middleton. Ooh. I don't know. Okay. So so these the accounts we'll, we'll link them in the show notes I guess but it's uh-huh. Sussex and Sussex Royal. And Kensington Palace and, and the royal family. And which one's the Windsor? The, the royal family. That's okay. So they kind of cover everybody. All right. So there's Kensington, Sussex, and they're both under the under Windsor? Sure. Is that how that works? Kind I'm of. I'm trying to figure this out. The royal family is like Queen Elizabeth, but yes. then she posts about all the members or her people post about all the members of the royal family. Okay. So it's more like um, news kind of stuff. Like today, the queen went to yeah, here and it, here's yeah. some- Okay. Getty images of the queen doing this. Okay. Whereas the Sussex is is more uh, influencer influencer kind of, and that's why people think Meghan is doing okay, it. Okay, gotcha. And Kensington is all William, Kate, and their family, and it's kind of a, it's a little newsy, but then they'll post pictures that the Duchess Kate has taken because she's a photographer too. Oh. So yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, that's sweet. We're getting toward the end of the, our time. I think we've probably mm-hmm. gone longer than we planned already, but that's fine. It's our first show. I want to move into the last kind of section, the feature that we've got. We want to do every week, we want to do recommended follow of the week. Um, and each of us, uh, whoever happens to be on the podcast, I think it'll usually be the three of us, but we have some friends who also may want to be on from time to time that may either join us for more than just three of us or may replace one of us if one of us has to be out or you know be a substitute host. But Whoever happens to be hosting the podcast for the week, uh, we want to be able to recommend a follow on any platform, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, whatever else. So uh, let's go around the table and share our recommended follows for the week. How you want to start? Yep. Pitching Ninja on Twitter at Pitching Ninja. Uh, it's a I phenomenal account. second this one. Yeah. I, you, I think you even like showed this one to me, but like I have absolutely fallen in love with this account because of I, I used to play baseball and... This guy just takes GIFs and uh, maybe even videos sometimes and, and does overlays of pitches and shows how hard it is to hit a baseball in the pros and even in college as well. So it, just some phenomenal pictures. From, and, and I've actually caught myself watching baseball online. There was a game the other night I was watching. It was the Brewers and somebody. I think it was the Brewers. Uh, maybe it was the Brewers and the Astros And about two weeks ago. And Ryan Braun swung at a ball that was in the left-handed batter's box and just looked foolish on it. Absolutely fooled by the pitch. And I, the first thought I had in my mind was, 
that'll be on Pitching Ninja tomorrow. <laughs> and sure enough, it was one of the top five swords of the week. So, yeah, it was it was phenomenal. So, and you know, the the one my new favorite one there is a. Uh, there was one of a of a guy who swung at a curveball that went actually and bounced between his legs. That's how bad the pitch was. It was actually a really good pitch because it got the guy to swing fooled. at it. But I mean, it's just like some of these things that it's just mind blowing. And then some of the you know the 101, 102 mile an hour fastballs, and then come back with the eighty eight mile an hour changeup and right. And they're like it, it they're going on the trajectory. That's why the overlays are so cool. It's yeah. like he shows how these these baseballs are going on the same trajectory 95% of the way to the plate. One is coming at 95 mile an hour and then the other one's coming at 85 and drops eight inches right before it gets to the plate. And it's like, how could you ever know as a hitter yeah. whether or not you're going to be swinging at the 100 mile an hour fastball coming at your face or then or the 85 mile an hour curveball that's about to drop right before it gets to you? Yes, yes. And it's Max Scherzer is, is the kind of the king of that. Yeah. And I, I, I have a newfound respect for Max Scherzer with the Nationals because yeah. uh, he's, he's got scary. what he's called the uh, the triangle of death. Three pitches that wind up in three different spots that 45 feet from the plate look like the same pitch. And it, it's just scary that the ball's moving that much. So I think if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't like baseball, baseball's boring, I think you would find this Twitter account fascinating just for like human feats of strength, not even – not even because it, it's not a baseball thing so much as just like it's an amazing thing to behold. Yeah, it's a head scratcher. You look at that and go, how did that even happen? Right. So, right. And it, it goes to the whole, you know, why is he swinging at that pitch? Well, let me show you the other two pitches. Yeah, exactly. In this overlay, that's why he swung at that pitch. So even Elizabeth, right. I think, would enjoy this. Yeah. So. so Elizabeth, what's your follow of the week? Mine is on Instagram. It is at the Bible is funny. And this person just takes Bible verses that are kind of weird or funny and takes them out of context and memifies them. So, like, there's one that at the top it says, every time I put a paper straw in my drink, and then it quotes Ezekiel 17.10, it has been planted, but will it thrive? Will it not wither completely? And so it's just like <laughs> an Instagram full account full of that, like just all these Bible verses, because sometimes the Bible can be funny, especially taken out of context and memified. So. Yes. That's great. Mine is um, he's he's on multiple platforms, but I follow him on Twitter because that's the platform I play I pay closest attention to. Uh, his name is Nathan Pyle. His Twitter handle is at Nathan W Pyle P Y L E, and um, he's a former writer at a former guy at BuzzFeed. He's a comedian. Uh, he writes a comic called Strange Planet, which is a comic about aliens who have sort of come to earth and are experiencing things for the first time. Um, it's really funny. It's pr like pretty clean. I've never seen him use like foul language, at least in excess. It might be crude from time to time, but more, more PG than PG 13 or above. Um, he's a, he's a Christian, I think, like I said, and uh, he's really funny. He, he posts all of the Strange Planet comments, uh, comics to Instagram, I think just under the Strange Planet username, but on Twitter and, and, uh, he releases other funny things as well, especially, uh, New York City pigeons who he sort of, uh, uses the Instagram, uh, uh, feature where you can pin text to video and pretend these pigeons are having conversations about, uh, interacting with each other or picking up food off the ground or what. He's just a really, Funny follow. I've started using Twitter more and more for comedy and entertainment than for serious political discussion or news just because it gets so toxic so quickly. And uh, Nathan Pyle is one of my favorite follows. So I highly recommend him. He's currently working on a book of the Strange Planet comics that I hope to pick up and just sort of has a have as a coffee table book at some point. So cool. Well, hey, thanks for listening to this 
uh, first episode of the Social Cues podcast. We're all on, we are all on Twitter as well as other platforms. I'm not going to sit here and list out all of our handles. You wouldn't be able to know how to figure us out and find us. Uh, we're all on Twitter, like I said. You can connect with us there. We'll be back sometime with episode two. Uh, I'm gonna, we're gonna release this podcast uh, first just via SoundCloud, so we can get it in people's hands or ears, I suppose, and let them listen to it as they wish. And then hopefully in the next couple weeks, maybe even next week, we'll have an episode up uh, for episode two. So thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll see you again soon.